And I want to bring up a thought before we enter into the text together, a thought that comes from C.S. Lewis. Uh, one of the movies that my wife and I watched recently was The Most Reluctant Convert. Has anyone ever heard of that movie before? It's a story about C.S.'s Lewis conversion. If you have not watched it, it's absolutely fascinating. And, and one of the, the premises of the, the movie, it's basically a, a documentary that goes through a lot of his writings and a lot of reflections about his wrestling with coming to terms of the existence of God. And one of the quotes I've read before, one of the quotes that really stuck out to me as we watched the movie was this statement, where Lewis says this, and this is where he's really wrestling and coming to terms with the existence of God. He says, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. If it true, it is an infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. Amen? But isn't it fascinating how easy it is for us in our lives to treat the message of the gospel as moderately important? And really, the, the beauty of what we're going to be studying in Colossians is, is breaking this whole premise down that Christianity and our understanding of Jesus transforms everything. And the last thing it can be is moderately important. Because as we look at the person of Jesus, when, when we come to terms that Jesus is God, it transforms everything. And what's fascinating to me is that when we look at all these other different worldviews, when, when we look at Islam and we look at Mormonism and we look at Jehovah's Witness and a lot of other teachers that Jesus was as a great moral man or a great teacher or something less than divine, um, they react very strongly if you were to ever say that Jesus is God. And especially with Islam, they can act even violently if you say that Jesus is God. Do you want to know why? Because there is something inherently threatening about Jesus being God, isn't there? There is something inherently threatening about Jesus being God because if Jesus is God, what's the implication for us? We don't get to be God anymore. We don't get to have control over our own lives. It transforms and changes everything. Everything is transformed because Jesus now becomes the center and supreme over all things. And so Colossians, as we approach this text this morning, bear in mind that as Paul is making these arguments, what he's drawing us towards is that Jesus has ultimate authority that Jesus is supreme, that Jesus is preeminent as he describes. And so we're going to be looking at 1 Colossians 1, chapters or verses 15 to 23. So if you have your Bibles turned there, this is our second sermon in the series in Colossians. And so a little recap, what are we talking about as far as genre when we look at Colossians? What genre are we talking about? Yeah, an epistle and a letter, right? And who wrote that letter? Paul, most likely when he was in prison in Rome. He could have been writing from Ephesus as well. And he's writing to which church? The church in the city of Colossae, right? And they're a church that he's writing to because Epaphras had planted this church and now he's coming back to Paul because he's saying there's a lot of things that the Colossae are not understanding about who Jesus is. 
There's some external influence and external teaching that's threatening the supremacy of Jesus Christ in the letter. And so Paul writes this letter to address some of those things. And we went through the introduction last week, and now in this section... We come to a very fascinating part of Colossians because a lot of scholars believe that this was actually a hymn that was written. They believe that Paul is actually quoting or writing from a hymn that was sung in the corporate worship of the church. And so you'll see that it's very poetic, but I hope that in studying it and analyzing it and hearing from God in it, that it would draw worship out of us. And so if Jesus is the most important person to know in all of history, then who is this Jesus that we read about in history? Well, first of all, Paul says that Jesus is king over creation. Jesus is king over creation. So let's read chapter, or verses 15 to 17 together. It says this, He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Wow, there's a lot of packed in there, isn't it? That is one intense passage, but here's what Paul is basically claiming in this passage. He's saying two things, two major claims. Jesus is God who created the cosmos, and Jesus is God who sustains the cosmos. It's beautiful. And so what does this mean? Well, first of all, we read, we read here that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. What does this mean? This means that Jesus represents God. John 1.18 says, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. Jesus has made Him known. Hebrews, back to our study of Hebrews. Hebrews starts by saying this, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And even at the Last Supper, Philip asked Jesus, he said, Lord, show us the Father, and is it enough for us? And how does Jesus respond? He says, I've been with you so long, and you still don't know me, Philip. And he says, whoever has seen me has seen who? The Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Has anyone ever been ever told, you remind me of your dad or you remind me of your mother? Anyone have that said before? Uh, that's been said to me a few times, and uh, I've heard comments, and I admit I see some resemblance, both good and bad. <laughs> but what's fascinating is I could never say that if you are looking at me, you are looking at my Father. And yet, this is exactly what Jesus is saying. If you are looking at me, then you are looking at God the Father. And so Jesus is claiming much more than just a resemblance of God the Father. He declares himself to be God in the flesh. And to see what God is truly like, we have to realize that Paul is saying you have to look at Jesus because Jesus manifests God because Jesus is God. And 1 John 4 says it like this. He says, No one has ever seen God 
We know that God occasionally shows up in theophanies. And so what are some theophanies that we see in the Old Testament of God showing up? Like the burning bush, the rock, a cloud of, uh, and fire at night, and uh, what by day? A pillar, right? And so we, we see these theophanies of God, but, and we see in Christ, in verse 19, for all in Him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In other words, it's only in Jesus Christ that the invisible God is made visible. Now, I think this is important for us to comprehend because uh, for all those of us who really connect to God in nature, who really connects to God in nature here? A bunch of, that's a lot of us, I especially. We have to comprehend this because sometimes the thought pattern we can have is that, well, I connect to God in nature. I've even talked to people that say, you know what, I'm not coming on Sunday because we're going to be exploring the mountains, and so it's not important to gather with the church. I'm going to be out in nature, and that is my worship of God. And I understand that because when I'm walking through trails or wandering through plains or climbing mountains, there's a, there's a depth of the experience of God, is there not? But here's the thing. We must realize that nature can reveal the existence the power, the wisdom, and the beauty of God, but it cannot reveal the essence of God. Amen? Only Jesus Christ can reveal the essence of God. And, and here's, here's what's fascinating to me, and this is why there's this prophet Isaiah who, who mocks the worship of nature. And he tells this parable of a man who cuts down a tree. Has anyone heard this parable? He cuts down a tree and he uses part of that tree to build fire and to warm his house. He uses part of that tree to make a fire, to bake bread that he can eat. And what does he use the rest of the tree for? What does he do with it? He carves an idol out of it, right? He carves his idol. And the, the person, as Isaiah says, the person who made the idol never stops to reflect why. It's just a block of wood. I burned half of it for heat and used it to bake my bread and roast my meat. How can the rest of it be God? Should I bow down and worship a piece of wood? <laughs> right? And it's, it's this message that how can a block of wood, no matter how beautifully carved, reveal the essence of the vine? The thing is it can't. It's impossible. And even no, no matter how much beauty this is shown, at the end of the day, it cannot reveal the essence of God. Has anyone ever been to Chetwin before? Has anyone seen the wood carvings there? There's a very famous wood carver there that does like mind-blowing stuff. He does like Spider-Man and bears and like it's almost realistic and it's all done with a chainsaw. It's mind-blowing what he does, and there's this beautiful imagery, and there's this beauty that's created, but at the same time, no matter how much beauty is created in this piece of wood, it can never reflect the beauty of God's essence. And, and this is what Paul is warning us about in understanding who Jesus is, because anything that we create cannot fully or faithfully represent God. And this is why we read in Exodus, Exodus 24 says, You shall not make for yourself the karma image or anything of likeness that is in heaven above or that is earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Why? Because no image man creates can fully or faithfully represent who God is besides Jesus Christ. 
He is the likeness of God. And this is wild for us to think about too because in Genesis, we as humans even, we're described as being created in what? We're created in the image of God. We're created in the icon of God is the literal Greek word. We're icons of God. And here's the, the wild thing. Yes, we as humans are made in the image of God. We are rational beings. We have intellect. We have emotion. We have will. We can think. We can feel. We can will. However, we do not bear God's image essentially. God has attributes and an essence that is beyond us because are we eternal beings? No, but God is. Are we unchanging beings? No, we've probably changed a lot this last week, but God is. Are we all knowing beings? No, are we all perfect beings? No, we do not bear God's image morally or essence because God is holy and we are not. But there is one who bears God's image essentially and moral, morally, and that is Jesus Christ, as Paul says. And so then he describes this, he says, because Jesus is God, Paul says that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. The firstborn over all creation. Now, sometimes people misunderstand this text because what do we often understand firstborn in reference to? The firstborn is, yeah, the first one who's born in the family, the one who comes first. And so for us, it means the first child, Right? the first child in a family. But we usually associate with that because of our, our modern presuppositions, but we need to remember that as soon as we read the Bible, we are going on a cross-cultural adventure, and we need to understand how the original audience would have heard this. So the firstborn and the son of a family who had a birthright, the, the male would have had the inheritance, right? That was the promise. The, the firstborn was a, uh, a claim of status, not of order. And so this is a status statement of who Jesus is. And we read about this in Exodus where God calls Israel as my firstborn son. Was Israel the first people to exist? No, but they're the firstborn, right? So when Paul calls Jesus the firstborn of all creation, he's not saying that he's the first thing created. That's a massive heresy that has to be dealt with, right? He's not the first thing created. What he's declaring is that Jesus is Lord over all creation. And so Jesus is the one who is supreme over all creation. He outranks things in creation. Therefore, creation itself is under the authority and status of Jesus. That is what Paul is stating there. And this is why he says right after that, he says, For by him all things were created. Now, th this is where the, the movements and, and uh, religions and worldviews that want to distinguish Jesus as the firstborn of God, so to say, or a God uh, coming of God, when they say Jesus was the firstborn, well, it makes no sense when you read the next verse, does it? It says, for by him all things were what? Created, right? It logically does not make sense. And I know some of you come from Mormon or Jehovah Witness background, so I hope you see the illogical nature of using the verse in that way. But what it's telling us here is that the only uncreated thing is God. And Jesus is that creator. And Jesus creates the world. So we read then the next part, 
that because Jesus is the creator, Jesus is also the sustainer. And it's beautiful here. He is before all things, and in him all things what? Hold together. So Jesus creates the physical, he creates the spiritual, and all things are created by him and through him and for him. And in all things, I think it's so beautiful in this verse 17, all things hold together. Now, have you ever thought for a moment how radically beautiful that is, that things are actually held together right now? Because we, we, we read about a God who did not simply start creation and then withdraw from it. We read about how Christ continues to sustain the whole universe. And we read about how Jesus, in bringing about creation, keeps the cosmos from becoming chaos. And, and it's quite fascinating when I, when I read this verse because some Jews actually believed that the universe would completely fly apart if it wasn't for the Jewish New Year festival, where they would cry out to God to sustain the universe, that they believed everything would sort of come into chaos and that everything would break apart. And they realized that it's God who contains the harmony of the upper and lower world to their beliefs. And I find this fascinating. I went, I went down a little bit of a rabbit trail on this thought, probably too long. But we have very something similar in our culture today, actually. Um, who here has ever heard of the expansion of the universe, right? Where, where we realize today, like, cosmologists and physicists, their minds are baffled by this. They still haven't figured out the answers of why or how. But we know that our universe is expanding. It's expanding, it's literally coming undone. And since the Hubble telescope especially, we realized that all of our thoughts about how the cosmos was holding together were quickly realizing that it's becoming unraveled. And what's casting a lot of fear in physicists and cosmologists right now is that it's coming apart way faster than we ever could have imagined as humans. Now, as the universe expands, the reasons why they're getting so concerned about it is because as the universe expands, what happens? Well, we see the earth ceasing to exist, basically. Because as the universe expands, the sun expands, which means the oceans are going to boil, the atmosphere basically evaporates into space, and can we as humans live in that world? No, so they're looking at full destruction. And so we realize that the expansion of the universe is basically going to take out all gravitational forces that hold all things together, which is going to mean non-existence for humans. And Neil deGrasse Tyson, anyone heard of him? He's a very famous scientist, and I really appreciate him. As a he's an agnostic, but he, uh, he really respects the history of the church and relative to the discovery of different scientists and inquiries, so he's someone I really honor and respect, but... He calls this expansion of the universe the big rip, where everything just rips apart. It's pretty graphic, and I'm going to read it because it's sort of technical language. But he says, the, the universe, the cosmos, will eventually overcome molecular bonds that are holding your flesh together. Have that picture in your mind right now. It's pretty gruesome. 
the accelerating forces will continue to gain strength as we expand because it is a property of a vacuum. And the bigger the universe, the more vacuum we have. And this will continue. Rip your molecules apart. Then it'll rip your atoms apart. Then there's a part where it rips. He says, I shouldn't say rip. It separates them. Then the very fabric of space and time itself will fall victim to this expansion. And we call that the big rip. In other words, the biggest threat that a lot of cosmologists right have and physicists is they realize that one day as the universe expands, everything is basically going to be torn apart to shreds. And that's the future of humanity. And that's, that's the hope of humanity, so to say. Aren't you glad that we have a God who sustains all things? Like when you realize that this is the reality, the probability of where the universe is going, that God is the only one who can sustain the universe. Because when you think about it, us as humans, sure, if the universe is expanding to the point where it's going to make us not extinct as humanity one day, what do we as humans have hope for to overcome that? Can any human, no matter how powerful or ingenious we are, overcome the expansion of the cosmos? No, it's completely outside of our capability and power, right? Our only hope is a God who holds all things together. And Colossians 1.17 again reminds us that in Christ all things are held together. And so we begin to think about these questions. Well, why is the world a cosmos and not a chaos? Well, it's because of Christ, why is it that the earth remains close enough to the sun that we don't freeze up, yet far enough away that we don't melt? Right? It's because of Christ. Why is it that the sun keeps rising in the east and going down in the west? It's because of Christ. Why is it that we experience fall, summer, winter, spring, or for us in Alberta, just winter and summer? Why do we experience these things? Because Christ is holding all things together. There's a sustaining power. Christ is more than just the force that preserves the ordinary, orderly account of the cosmos, but he actually is its very rationale, the very meaning and purpose and reason behind the cosmos, and he is a God who is taking care of the cosmos. Amen? That is our hope. Jesus is king of all creation. The next thing that Paul reminds us about Jesus is that Jesus is the king of the church, verses 18 and 19. This is what the text says. It says, And Jesus is the head of the body, the church. Now, there's a lot of descriptions in the New Testament defining the church, right? Um, but the body is one of those main descriptions. I'll explain why in a moment says, He is the beginning. He says, the firstborn. Again, that's not the firstborn as we would read it as moderns, but He is the one who is in power and control and sustaining these things. The firstborn from the dead. Why? Because He rose from the dead. And He's the only one to rise from the dead that will not die again. Amen? That's what it's saying there. That in everything, He might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was to dwell. 
And so here's, here's the beauty of who Christ is over the church. What's the main description? He is the what over the body? He is the head over the body. And this might be a little graphic for the kids, but what happens when a body does not have a head? <laughs> it's dead. It, it cannot function the way it's supposed to. It cannot do. It cannot function the way that it was created. And so this primary metaphor is the church is a body and Christ is the head is really this image that in the church we realize that we are a living organism. We are not dead as an organization because we have Christ as the head. Now, the, the body throughout the New Testament is, is constantly used of the New Testament church to talk about our mutuality and dependence upon one another as the members of the body of Christ. But here, Paul is using this metaphor to emphasize the total dependence that we as members of the body have on the head. Because again, if Christ is not the head of the church, then we are nothing. We're dead. Anything without a head is dead, and anything with more than one head is what? A monster, <laughs> right? So we realize that. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. We realize that Jesus becomes this crucial aspect to the life of the church. Now, now here's another key thing that we don't naturally pick up just reading through this text. But we have to realize that something else Paul is doing here is bringing us from the, the narrative of creation, talking about Jesus as creator and sustainer. Now he's bringing us to the narrative of Christ through the lens of new creation. This is the trend that he's moving towards because Christ's resurrection is the source of new life for us. Amen? He is the first in sequences that now opens up the possibility of new life, of resurrection, of new creation. Jesus does that through his death, burial, and resurrection. So now is not Jesus just the creator of the cosmos. Now he is the creator who brings the new creation into fruition, a creation of love and peace and joy and justice and a, the eradication of evil and injustice. All these things are promised through the life of God and resurrection. Now notice, who is connected most deeply to that new creation? Which people? The, the church. Which means part of our calling as having Christ as our head is to be a people of new creation. Of moving against the evil and injustice of the former world and practicing the fruition of the kingdom of God. And so this creation talking about moving towards new creation is this anticipation where one day all things will be drawn into harmony with our Creator. Where all things will be made right with our God. That all things will be restored and renewed among humanity. And we get to enjoy the beauty of new creation in God our Father. Don't we long for that day? I constantly long for that day. The third thing Paul brings up, Jesus is the king of reconciliation. Here's a beautiful, beautiful passage that he climaxes here at the end of the section. And he says this in verses 20 to 23. He says, and through him, in other words, this is the mission of new creation. This is the mission of Christ as the head of the church. He says, and through him 
to reconcile to himself what? All things, whether on earth or in heaven. And how does Jesus reconcile all things? By making peace by the blood of his cross. Amen? Verse 21, And you who were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy. In other words, set apart for his purposes. Blameless. In other words, sinless. And above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. And, and here's really the implication that Paul draws up for us as the church. And this is where C.S. Lewis's quote becomes pretty apparent for us. Because the only thing Jesus can't be is moderately important. Because the logic here is, if Jesus is the creator and sustainer of the universe, of the cosmos, and if Jesus is the one who through his death on the cross, through his burial and resurrection, is drawing in a new creation to eradicate evil and injustice and sin and bringing about a kingdom of justice and peace and righteousness and love and generosity, he says, then your role as the church, as the people of God, if Christ has done this and is moving towards this, you must join him in this mission. And this is why, why Paul gives the warning in the text here. He says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from what? Not shifting from the hope of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ and what he's accomplishing. That is your calling. That is your purpose. That is your mission. That is everything you exist for. And so to close, I want us just to comprehend that question once again. The, the, the statement that Lewis brings before us. Because, you know what, people who reject Jesus, I, I can have compassion for. Because they don't recognize these things about him. They say, no, Jesus isn't God, Jesus isn't creator. Well, they treat him the way that they believe him to be. But I think especially for us as the church, if we have these statements of faith and if we believe that Jesus is God, that he's creator and sustainer of the cosmos, that he is the only hope to restore and reconcile all things, to bring about new creation, then how does that not transform everything? Everything. And that's why Paul says that Church, you, you have to focus on the gospel. You have to remember what Christ has done because it transforms everything in your life. And so let me, let me just pray that for us as we prepare for communion. I just invite you to bow your heads with me. I'm going to invite the team to come up as well. And let's just pray this text together and what Paul and God has to speak to us.
our gracious God, we come before you. First of all, in confession that we do not treat you the way you are worthy of. We do not treat you the way you deserve. Lord, some of us in this room have misconstrued ideas of you. Some of us have a thought that, oh, you're just a good moral teacher. You're just a, a guru for us to follow. And yet you are so much more. You are our very creator. You are our very sustainer in life. You hold the cosmos from becoming a chaos. And Lord, you even hold our lives from becoming pure chaos. Because you bring order. You bring love and justice. And so Lord, we come in confession that when we don't live up to who you are and what you have called us to be, we confess our sins to you, knowing that thankfully you are a God who is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins because you have made peace through the blood of the cross. You have restored us through you dying as a sacrifice for our sins. The debt that is owed to you was paid by Jesus. And so, Lord, we pray that we would come to terms with who you are as a church, as individuals, and we would become agents of reconciliation. That we would become agents and creatures of a new kingdom, of an eternal kingdom that you are bringing forth. Lord, we realize that from the worldviews of this uh, culture, there is no hope. There is no hope apart from you. And yet you have given us a beautiful hope. And Lord, we pray that we would have the courage and boldness to live out of that hope, to be what you have called us to be by the power of your Spirit and in obedience to your will. May it be true of us. In the name of Jesus and Jesus alone we pray. Amen.